Breaking the Glass, episode 11. When you talk about uh, breaking the glass ceiling, uh, my inner compass was telling me, uh, this is not the career for you. This is not your calling. Right. And I saw, saw so many of the other salespeople get locked into the job. And I had an office mate. Um, his name was Steve Weinstein. And every other day, Steve had, I could have been a contender type story. <laughs> and he used to be uh, a salesperson in Syracuse. He was from Utica, New York. And one day I said to myself, 20 years from now, after I've uh, bought the house in the Hamptons and I have all these financial commitments and I'm in the sales position and I'm kind of locked in, will I be saying something similar right. to the young trainee? And that prompted me to say, you know what, Sean, uh, you got to do something uh, different and answer your calling. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 11. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up, and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. My guest today is Sean Dove. Sean is the CEO of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. This gentleman is an amazing connector, an extremely powerful networker, and his main mission in life right now is to resource and advance organizations for the purpose of improving the achievement of black males in the United States. He started his life in a rough part of New York City, lifelong New York City native, or even at a point he was selling loose marijuana cigarettes on the street corner. But a couple of blocks away, he was noticed by a mentor of his, John Simon, who pulled him into the Dome Project. This started him on the path to where he was able to fulfill his purpose. He became a social entrepreneur, using his gifts and abilities to help the community. He had some extremely powerful mentors along the way. And if it's one thing I realized, it's the value of collecting people around you or the fortune you may have of having folks around you who can help guide you on the right path. He did that in a major way. And one of the things that just jumps off the page about Sean is he's just a really nice guy. Super hardworking, very organized, has an amazing team. Took me about three months to get the interview scheduled, but all along the way, he stayed in touch and push to make sure that we got this message out. And that is the message of him being a lifelong social entrepreneur. And now as the head of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, he's part of an organization that started underneath the Soros Foundation called the Open Society Foundation. And while there, he made it so successful that they spun it off into its own institution and corporation. Over the time he's been involved with it, they've invested over $212 million dollars helped nearly 1,000 leaders, done six national campaigns, and it even got him invited to the White House where he was at a meeting with President Obama sitting right across the table from him. As he got to explain the things he had done in the past and the plans he had for the future, what he had to say inspired the president to start his own organization, which he wants to be his legacy, that you will know now as My Brother's Keeper. 
Sean has received numerous awards and recognitions, including 2016 when he was recognized as one of Black Enterprise's 100 Modern Men of that year. You're going to love this interview, and he concludes by telling you how to discover your G-spot and become a gold digger. Now, clean your mind up. It's not that kind of G-spot or gold digger. He'll explain it to you, and you're going to enjoy everything you hear from him in this conversation and learn a lot just like I did. So please welcome my guest, Sean Dove. My guest today on the Breaking the Glass show is Sean Dove. He's the CEO of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Sean, welcome to the Breaking the Glass show. Hey, TQ. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely thrilled uh, to be on the show with you. So, Sean, we uh, when we get started, we try to hear where people have come from so we know how you started. So we call it a lightning round background. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what life was like for you growing up? Sure. Um, native New Yorker. Um, have lived in every borough in New York City except for uh, Staten Island. Um, raised by a single mom. Uh, who immigrated from Jamaica. Her name is Deanna. And she has been the source of uh, so much uh, that has been good in my life. And she uh, taught me about sacrifice. She taught me about resiliency and creativity. Um, But I also, my upbringing, Benefited a lot from just the sense of community and family. In my early uh, formative years, I lived with my godmother in Harlem during the week and my mother uh, on the weekends in the South Bronx. My experience with my godmother was just a phenomenal one. If you ever saw the movie uh, with Hill Harper, uh, Lackawanna Blues, uh, that was my experience. Uh, my godmother, Lel, uh, we called her Lel, but her name was Lillian. She ran numbers. She ran numbers uh, with uh, Nikki Barnes' uh, father, Roy Barnes. Wow. And for listeners who may or may not know who the heck is the uh, Nikki Barnes, but he's a legendary uh, uh, Harlem uh, drug dealer. But um, when I stayed with Lau, um, she had a number of uh, characters who were um, folks that lived in the house. And and it was really animated, but there was this real sense of uh, a community and uh, really have fond memories of that. And lived, began living full time with my mom at fifth grade. And I've just had a sense of uh, people who have divinely come into my life and have seen uh, and have seen things in me that I did not see in myself at the times. And so I've just been blessed with a number of mentors, coaches and folks that were invested in ensuring that I realized uh, my, uh, my my potential uh, one was a man named John Simon who ran an organization called the Dome Project on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, right. and that's where I had my first job and uh, got a prep school scholarship uh, to the Dome Project, and um, eventually came back to be uh, the executive director at 24 years old. And the Dome uh, Project is that a like a, a private type of school? No, no, it's not a private school, although it 
uh, helped me get a scholarship to private school. And I tell that story. It's a grassroots uh, youth development program on the Upper West Side that still exists. Right. I got involved through their basketball team. Uh, heard that they were giving away f- uh, free sneakers and, and, and uniforms. And when I got there, um, they had given away the last pair of sneakers and I didn't get on the team right away, right. but the dome was located two blocks away from, uh, my corner 80th street and Amsterdam Avenue, where I thought I wanted to, uh, sell loose joints, hmm. uh, with catchy slogans, pass me by, you won't get high. <laughs> uh, didn't necessarily need to be, uh, on the corner selling loose joints, but, uh, got involved with the Dome Project, got on the team. Um, and shortly after, the one day John came up to me and he said, you know what, Sean, you have potential and you can do great things if you spend less time on the corner of 80th Street and Amsterdam Avenue uh, and more time at the Dome. And uh, while it was only two blocks away from the Dome, I was like, how the heck did he know I was on the corner selling uh, loose joints? And right. uh, he passed that way on his way home. And that was a transformational time for me. Uh, introduced me to youth organizing. Got my first job at the Dome Project. Uh, grew up with a cohort of uh, young men that uh, I'm still in touch with. Uh, about eight, nine of us that we are still uh, in touch now that we're on the north side of 50 years old. Are and all of you into, are, is everyone of the group so committed to the communities that will bring you guys together? Uh, we are committed to each other. We are committed to the, our legacy of the dome. Um, it's really uh, various stories. In fact, we just uh, did a mini documentary that we aired at the Apollo Theater back in June Very with nice. six of us. And so there are a couple of brothers that um, have done time. Um, and, uh, other one is a lawyer, uh, uh, and it's a, like six unique stories Right. And, and yes, committed to the community, um, not necessarily doing professional, uh, work, uh, on similar to what I am doing, but, uh, we are certainly committed to each other. Um, and to the community, and we uh, get together uh, on a frequent basis, and we're on a text, a group text. Uh, and, and what's interesting, TQ, is that when we did the documentary um, and we aired it, uh, it was a beautiful thing, and I was happy to be able to uh, uh, help facilitate it. But so many black men came up to me, and Latino men, men of color, and said, wow, it's six of you that have been together from your uh, uh, early to mid-adolescence. Mm. And you know what? I don't have that. Right. Uh, so many of uh, the brothers in my cohort are either dead or in jail. Mm. And uh, it made me even more appreciative of that bond uh, and uh, the, the power of uh, longevity. We lost. We have lost some along the way. Right. Uh, uh, but when you think of a cohort, you know, grew up in a drug culture in the seventies, uh, and you know, by the time I was fourteen, uh, you name it, I had tried it, and 
uh, overcoming and drugs was a big part of my story. And, you know, I have 28 years of clean, but to be able to, when we look at teenagers who came together in the mid to late seventies and are able to, uh, you know, six of us still have this bond. Um, it wasn't until people began to say, I don't have that. Appreciate that. I um I remember growing up we would always in college we would say like man I made it to 21 I just beat a statistic or I made it to 25 I beat a statistic so to have friends and and I grew up in the suburbs of Allen it was not nothing like um where you grew up in New York so the worst thing we had to worry about was maybe a cow you know what I'm saying hitting us or something like that um but to have made it that far is definitely powerful what do you think um it was with your mentor or what you experienced maybe from home that got you from that position through the Dome program to getting into college and then on to doing the work you do in the community? So at the heart of it, it's certainly the grace of God. Um, even before I knew it was the grace of God, when I look at my story and uh, many instances of uh, if I would have been five minutes at a spot earlier, um I would have been in jail or, or, or dead. Right. And so at the heart of it, uh, uh, the grace of God and right. he has been guiding me. Um, and I would then say the adults that I've had in my life. Right. And I, you know, I live my life in a spirit of reciprocity and, uh, really believe in generosity and giving. And so I also will say that, uh, I've been a magnet, and, you know, life's a boomerang. Right. And so so much that I've put out there has come back uh, right. back. To me. And I won't say luck. I will say being at the right place, uh, serendipity, being in the right place at the right time and uh, has contributed dramatically um, to the life that I've been blessed to live. What about. Your first career position after that was in the Harlem Children's Zone, and you did a lot of work in that area for about the next 15 years or so. Um, what was that experience like working as a program director there and, and working in that community? So when you talk about career experiences, if I can just briefly, before I get to the Harlem Children's Zone, uh, kind of tell you the circuitous route that I took. When I graduated Wesleyan University in uh, 1984, uh, my first four years of uh, professional work after college, I sold textiles in a garment district. Okay. And, and uh, the CEO of the uh, textile firm uh, was a man named Martin Tandler. He was also the board, uh, he was the chairman of the board of the Dome Project. And I worked for him a couple of summers during college and Christmas breaks. And I wanted to originally be a sales, I mean, a sports writer. And who do I know that can give me a job? And I approached Martin and I said to him, uh, I would love for you to start a sales trainee program and for me to be the first sales trainee. And um, he took me up on that offer. I was the youngest and only salesperson of color. And those four years after school and sales just taught me so much about relationships uh, taught me so much about trusting my instincts, helped me dramatically with public speaking. I used to dread 
the uh, weekly sales uh, meetings when you had to uh, speak to the team on what you were up to, but it was teaching me uh, so much. And I was uh, also serving on the board of the Dome Project, and I was increasingly, um, and I think this is important for uh, your listeners, when you talk about uh, breaking the glass ceiling, uh, my inner compass was telling me, uh, this is not the career for you. This is not your calling. And I saw or so many of the other salespeople get locked into the job. And I had an office mate, um, his name was Steve Weinstein. And every other day, Steve had, I could have been a contender type story. <laughs> and he used to be uh, a salesperson in Syracuse. He was from Utica, New York. And one day I said to myself, 20 years from now, after I've, uh, bought the house in the Hamptons and I have all these financial commitments and I'm in the sales position and I'm kind of locked in. Will I be saying something similar to the young trainee? And that prompted me to say, you know what, Sean, uh, you got to do something uh, different and answer your calling. And quite frankly, it was at a time I was uh, at the uh, final stages of my addiction and I was uh, like, this is not the life that I was called to. And it just so happened that I was chairing the search committee, uh, for a new executive director of the dome project. Mm. And, um, one night reviewing resumes, there was a voice in my head and it sounded very much like my own voice that said, you can do this job, Mm. throw your hat in the ring. And I approached uh, my fellow board members and said, I wanted to uh, throw my hat in the ring. And I think, one, they were really excited about the prospect of someone who grew up in the organization coming back to be uh, its executive director. And I think, two, they were tired of the search, right? We were all tired of the search. Like, just give them the job so right. we can move on. And I, that was the beginning of my social entrepreneurial career. Yeah. I, would, I got my butt kicked that first year. 24-year-old executive director of a youth program that I grew up in, my staff, many of my staff still saw me as little Sean. And if you can see me now, and you know, how could I ever be seen as uh, someone could see me as little Sean, you know, <laughs> uh, a 6'2", 300-pound guy. Um, but it was really challenging because I had to uh, manage, in a couple of cases, let go uh, people that coached me and counseled me. Wow. And, and um, a year into that uh, position as executive director of the Dome Project was when I decided to surrender uh, and get help with my lifelong addiction mm. um, and went into rehab and been clean ever since. And Six months uh, after that is when I started my career at the Hall of Children's Own, which was uh, a transformational experience. And I got there through one mentor, uh, a guy named Richard Murphy, who was the founder of an organization called Reedland Centers for Children and Families, which was eventually uh, the name changed into the Hall of Children's Own. Okay. And that uh, he hired me as he was leaving Reedland to become the uh, youth commissioner for Mayor David Dinkins here in New York City, and Jeffrey Canada, who has been a lifelong uh, mentor since then, 
took over and I started working for Jeffrey Canada and um, so much of my leadership, uh, so many people have poured into me, but I would say he in particular, when it comes to running an organization, being a social entrepreneur, uh, I have learned so much for him from him. And I had the opportunity to grow up uh, in the Harlem Children's Zone and be creative and add value uh, to the organization as I uh, grew into uh, the leader that I am today. Now, you you said the word social entrepreneurship a couple of times, and we talked a little bit about it on an episode with the Sean who introduced me to you, uh, Sean Randolph. And but yes. can you, from your perspective, when you say the word social entrepreneurship, what do you mean when you say that? And, and why do you position yourself that way? Sure, that's a great question. And at the heart of it, I would say the ethos of a social entrepreneur and what it means is that you can do well and do good at the same time. A uh, social entrepreneur creates solutions uh, and provides uh, social change strategies and creates value around that, right? And so um, even before, when I mentioned John Simon earlier, who was the founder of the Dome Project and was able to negotiate a contract with the school district to create an alternative junior high school for young people that were having challenges in the mainstream to negotiate contracts and to uh, transform a vacant lot into a beautiful using and working with young people into a beautiful uh, community garden. Uh, he was a social entrepreneur before the term was even coined. Right. And so I think that it is really taking an enterprise model uh, and bringing social value and producing uh, social outcomes. Uh, and that's how I see as a, a, a social entrepreneur. And do you distinguish that between general nonprofit work that people see themselves doing today? Uh, is, is there an importance in saying approach this from an entrepreneurship mindset as opposed to just trying to do good in order to have longevity, do you think? Yeah, I, I do think it is a difference in mindset, and I do think it's a difference in operations. I think uh, while if you are running a not-for-profit organization, you know, obviously you cannot, uh, say, be a for-profit company, but that does not mean you cannot create uh, wealth. Uh, you cannot that means you can also buy property. You can have a balance sheet. And I do think it is a mindset of one being entrepreneurial. And I think it's really important because just as you've heard the term uh, the prison industrial complex, uh, there is a not-for-profit industrial uh, uh, complex uh, where there are not-for-profit organizations and jobs that are not truly servicing and eradicating social ills. They're just necessarily keeping themselves employed. Right. And I do think that uh, a social entrepreneur addresses and brings a sense of um, enterprise thinking to intractable problems on a level of scale, 
on a level of uh, uh, innovation, and uh, there is a difference in the approach and the mindset. Now, you went on to do, after the Harlem Children's Zone, um, you went on to work later on in the Mentoring Partnership of New York and then the National Organization for Mentor. Um, Yep. What's important? Obviously, you were mentored. Why did you get involved in that organization, and what's important about it to you in order to be for you to be involved in it? Well, so um, I wouldn't be where I am. We wouldn't be having this conversation, TQ, if it were not for a succession of mentors uh, in my life, uh, informal mentors, right? Uh, the field of me- mentoring has become professionalized uh, over the last few decades. But I grew up in a time that there were coaches and uh, counselors that uh, were mentoring me long before I even heard of the word and what it meant. And it really has to do with relationships, right? Um, but as the field uh, became professionalized, where there were standards and elements of effective uh, uh, practice. Um, I was uh, working at an organization called the National Guild of Community Schools uh, of the Arts, and I was there for a few years, and was uh, it was time for my next leadership challenge. They had relationships with the financial uh, sector where they would create uh, workplace mentoring programs. And this is the mentorship partnership in New York, right? Yes, the mentoring, uh, the, the mentoring partnership of New York, which was the affiliate, the flagship affiliate of the national uh, uh, organization. What I loved about that uh, job was that it allowed me to, uh, on a given day, both be in the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company convincing the CEO to launch a workplace mentoring program and or to invest in mentoring financially. And in that same day, I could wind up later on uh, in a community center on the block uh, in any community in New York City, uh, participating in a uh, mentor training. Uh, we had faith-based mentoring, which was really near and dear to my heart and my spirit and elevating that. And there was also uh, a membership organization. At the heart of what I do is create community. Yeah. And, and that position uh, helped me to identify talents and gifts inside of me that were yearning to come out that other people saw that I didn't see in myself. And um, I still, you know, there's still stuff inside of me that I'm pulling out and that see. And and for your listeners, um, look, I just turned 55 a couple of months ago in September. And when I was a kid, I thought that at 55, I would be shopping for my rocking chair. I would be on... (laughs) Uh, getting ready to push cruise control. And at 55, I really feel like I am just getting started. Yeah. Um, That's why the health and, 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 uh, you know, there's something to longevity, you know, in in getting to this point. And I will tell you that I um, am increasingly with a sense of urgency uh, getting serious about uh, my health 
I was at the doctor last week and he said, uh, well, I told him I need to lose 50 pounds. And he looked at me and said, no, you need to lose a uh, hundred. Oh. We had a debate because I, <laughs> I would be a little bit too light if I lost a hundred right. pounds. But part of the work we do at the Campaign for Black Male Achievement is elevating BMA health and healing strategies and not necessarily for young people, but for the leaders that are doing the work, that are charged with uh, being the Calvary. What I've discovered, the levels of depression, the levels of uh, trauma that we carry with us uh, as uh, social entrepreneurs, leaders, activists, advocates, is really off the charts. Yeah. And uh, so we started something BMA Health and Healing Strategies to really elevate uh, leaders addressing their self-care, their wellness, and their healing. Well, I, so you did move on to the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. I know it was something that was started um, within the George Soros Open Society Foundation, and you end up moving it and spinning it off into its own entity. I, I want to kind of hone in on a couple of things with what you just said. You deal with you dealt with leaders in the mentorship space. Now, you, you could talk a little bit about what the Campaign for Black Male Achievement is about. But you deal a lot with leaders. So talk about what the Campaign for Black Male Achievement is about. I also want to hear, though, with leaders who you're dealing with, um, what's the number one thing that can help them be successful as compared to what they're struggling with as you talk to them? So what's holding them back and how can they best overcome that thing that you see in commonality? Okay, great. Uh, So I'll start with the Campaign for Black Male Achievement and I think it's really important to note that the campaign for Black Male Achievement, as you uh, said, TQ, was launched at the Open Society Foundations uh, in 2008, and it was. And the Open Society Foundation is the philanthropy of George Soros, uh, um, Hungarian billionaire hedge fund godfather type that really has put his. Uh, philanthropy and his money around his uh, mission and uh, social justice uh, uh, beliefs. And it was originally designed to be a three-year campaign uh, to improve life outcomes of black men and boys. And uh, in retrospect, you know, when you look at philanthropy, to think that, you know, a three-year campaign is really going to address <laughs> uh, generational and centuries-long uh, challenges of uh, uh, white supremacy and racism and discrimination and barriers that black men and boys face, uh, you kind of chuckle. But um, halfway through our three-year um, term, um, we made a strategic presentation to uh, the board, the Open Society Foundation's board, and I approached the work, um, as I shared earlier, with building community. And we had a team. Uh, my partner was a gentleman by the name of Rashid Shabazz, who was the program officer, and we heavily infused strategic communications. And we approached the work as community organizers, community builders that we were. And so in that board meeting, he took off the term limits uh, and said, you know, we're going to extend this campaign and tripled our budget. Right. So Mr. Soros did that. Yeah, Mr. Soros uh, uh, did that. Right. And that's the there's a beauty and a, ble- and a burden uh, with in the philanthropic sector for working for a living donor, hmm. because when you're working for a living donor, you are at the whim 
of the living donor. So during a board meeting, your portfolio and your strategy can either go to the next level during a board meeting based on his perception and his desires and his whims, uh, or you can be looking for a a job after the board meeting. Uh, Fortunately, during this board meeting, uh, he decided that he wanted to scale up the campaign for Black Male Achievement. And you said he tripled your budget. What level did he triple you up to? So at the time, we were um, making $5 million a year in grants, and we scaled it up to $15 million in grants, right? And what's interesting, when I started, so this was my first, um, you know, foray on the philanthropic side of uh, social justice and, and change and when I realized I had $5 million a year, I was like, wow, you know, that's, you know, a lot of money. But it took me one day to realize that's not a lot of money hmm. because when we announced the campaign, the demand far exceeded the supply. And when you think of the enormity of the challenge uh, that we are facing in this nation, um the $5 million is not enough. The $15 million is not enough. And the $500 million over the last 10 years that we've helped leverage directly or indirectly uh, certainly uh, has not been enough. But it's yeah. helped to catalyze uh, the, the, the movement. But to cut to the chase on where we are today, um, Around the time we were scaled up, uh, I began to realize two things. One is that the infrastructure of the field and the organization and the leaders uh, was very fragile. I had, um, as a grant-making institution, leaders calling me, emailing me, saying, if you don't send the next grant wire to our bank. We don't know how we're going to make the next payroll. Mm -hmm. And these were some organizations that were pretty well situated. And I realized if this organization is having these financial challenges, these infrastructure challenges, what about the thousands of other organizations? And what could we do to build the infrastructure of the field so that it's sustained for the long haul? Can I, if I can pause you for a second so we can maybe clarify one thing. You said you had a $5 million budget. That's not for It sounds like that's not for you and your staff, but it's to resource other organizations. You're directing the efforts of other maybe member or affiliated organizations around the city, around the country. How, how yeah. is that structured? So that's a good distinction. So the $5 million originally was our grant-making budget, right? right. And very good uh, distinguishing question, TQ. Uh, and so we had our, obviously a program budget that had to do with salaries and events. But the five million dollars were represented the grants that we um, were able to um, give across the country. Got it. And we launched. They were in three uh, buckets of uh, educational equity. Um, Strengthening family structures with a heavy focus on uh, responsible fatherhood organizations and strategies and organizations that were working with single mothers raising uh, black boys. Um, And we also launched uh, with investments around creating living wage work uh, opportunities. And throughout all of the work, 
we infuse uh, an asset-based uh, narrative change strategy. And I will tell you, when we decided to name uh, the campaign for Black Male Achievement, we decided that was the first thing I did was change the name of the program. Many people couldn't get their heads around Black male and achievement in the same sentence because mm-hmm. it wasn't a deci- you know, deficit-based framing. It wasn't a disconnected dad. It wasn't marginalized men. Mm-hmm. And it was um, asset-based. And so much of what we've done over the past 10 years has worked to uh, inform and invest in research around implicit bias and uh, how black men and boys are perceived, uh, not only in uh, the broader community, but in our own uh, community. So getting back to, so building the infrastructure was one thing, but I also realized that philanthropy is fickle and that there is, what's the new fad or the new investment strategy? And this was around 2011, 2012, and I realized uh, you know, in 2011, that what America needed was not a campaign for black male achievement that resided in any foundation, but what we really needed was more like a corporation for black male achievement, an endowed philanthropic social enterprise that can lean into this issue for the long haul, right. that could invest in leaders and organizations that are doing this work. And I began to, one, uh, mutter that under my breath, this corporation <laughs> Black Male Achievement, slowly got the courage to start saying it out loud. And around 2012, uh, the leadership of the uh, Open Society Foundations uh, came up to me and said, look, we've been hearing you talk about this. Uh, We think there's an opportunity to spin off the campaign for Black Male Achievement and launch this corporation for uh, 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 Black Male Achievement that you've been talking about. Um, That was 2012. It wasn't until 2015 in January when we spun off into an independent entity and are now um, a 501c3 uh, with our headquarters in New York, a team of uh, 15. Uh, We are a national membership organization that really seeks to ensure that leaders and other organizations committed to uh, improving the life outcomes of black men and boys that their work is sustained, uh, that it grows, and that it has uh, impact. What kind of organizations, like what's an example of an organization that you support or that you're helping to to maximize? Sure, and it's a, oh, such a wide range. So one example is an organization here based in New York City uh, called Eagle Academy. Um, and Eagle Academy in 2006 launched uh, the first uh, – single gender school for boys in the city uh, in 40 years. And it was boys and girls high school that, uh, or all boys high school, boys high school that was in Brooklyn. Um, And they have a whole network of uh, boys schools that are predominantly African-American and Latino that is 
uh, in all five boroughs and one in Newark. They're an example. And their approach is really a community strategy that takes schooling um, beyond the walls of the school and into the community. Uh, so we have been investing and supporting them for a number of years. Uh, another example is um, an organization called the Dovetail Project, no relation, uh, that's in Chicago and was launched by a young man named Sheldon Smith, who was a young father, uh, had criminal justice uh, system involvement, and was called to create uh, strategies for uh, young dads between 17 and 24, mm. many of whom have uh, been in the criminal justice system, and he provides them with employment training, uh, provides them uh, with street law training, and with obviously uh, fatherhood and um, parenting training. And his work has been replicated not only throughout Chicago, but other cities have begun to uh, uh, take on uh, this work. Wow. Um, and we've uh, invested in a number of organizations that are committed to uh, doing exactly what you are doing, TQ, and elevating how uh, black men and boys can be masters of their uh, their own media, so a number of uh, groups in the media uh, space. I would say since the launch of uh, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, uh, there have been over uh, 250 uh, organizations uh, that we have invested in, we have supported, sponsored their events, uh, and it ranges from the education space to criminal justice space, uh, uh, social entrepreneurship. And when we think about social entrepreneurship, uh, for example, you may have heard of an organization called Echo and Green. Mm -hmm. And in 2011, we partnered with Echo and Green to uh, resource them to launch the first ever Black Men Achievement Fellowship focusing on social entrepreneurs. And so we've seeded that. And so there's been a class every year since 2011 where they are specifically supporting and uh, uh, resourcing social entrepreneurs that are elevating uh, startup strategies around uh, black male achievement. And so we partner with government. Uh, we partner with the private sector. We partner with the social sector and philanthropy. And it is critical to note that it's going to take a collective uh, effort, yeah, a, a multi-sector effort for the long haul right. to reverse uh, the distressing data that we see as it resolves, uh, revolves around black men and boys. And this, uh, and and this is not about. I heard a young man in Chicago last week or two weeks ago talking about. This is not about the uh, oppression Olympics. Hmm. Uh, um, young man from Oakland was telling the story of how we uh, sometimes pit uh, our issues against each other, right? And so, you know, black male achievement is just as important as uh, uh, immigrant rights and immigration reform. And so partnerships and intersecting with uh, other groups and issue areas is uh, paramount. And I think it's just sometimes people think 
because you're focused on one thing, you don't care about other things. But this just happens to be the lane that you found yourself in to try to excel where you're partnering uh, with over 5,200 leaders and 2,700 organizations nationwide to help them grow and do things to improve their situation. And 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 I think it's powerful because I think myself sometimes, even when I started this show, part of the motivation behind it is the the problems that exist in communities of color seem so huge. How do you get your arms around it all? Um, and what you seem to have tapped into, which I really respect, is a network. A network of people who are successful can do well. And, and I think we're kindred spirits in a way that I always felt like I, I may not always be the best. I, I do mentor some people closely, but I may not be the best frontline mentorship group of a local group of folks. Whereas if I mentor leaders, they can have a multiplying effort in these areas where they have expertise and you sort of give them extra capacity to do more. And, and that's what I hope that this show can do um, with them as well. And I, I wonder for you in that vein, um, if there's something that you feel like a skill set that's important for you as a leader that's made that's uh, made you successful, what are one or two skills that you think are critical to be a successful social entrepreneur? Great question. Um, so I think number one, a skill set that is critical is one of uh, self-awareness and uh, emotional intelligence. Hmm. And particularly when you are building and facilitating uh, networks, building an organization and being able to uh, have empathy and, and being able to uh, have the awareness, uh, not only self-awareness, organizational awareness to recruit the right talent, build organizational culture. And that's really huge. And I think that uh, requires a special skill. And one, um, you have to be, on one hand, bold as a lion, yet humble as a lamb, uh, I will be the first people, first person to let you know I don't have all the answers when it comes to uh, the mission of the campaign for Black Male Achievement. Mm. And, and if my uh, team was in the room with me during this interview, uh, you would see a bunch of heads nodding. Like that's right, <laughs> it doesn't right? But I do think that it's a skill with being able to one first understand that and know that you don't have to that you don't have all the answers and two knowing that you don't have to have all the answers and so building um being able to build team uh and get people um in a place where they are able to identify and play to their strengths right so you know making sure if you know just like a team you know you're not going to draft a point guard and all of a sudden say you know what we drafted you as a point guard and those that's your 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 your, your skill set but we want you to play power forward right that's not gonna work out for the player it's not going to work out for the team it's definitely not going to work out for the coach that made that uh uh decision the other skill set i would say is um resiliency yeah um, and being able to uh, bounce back and manage inevitable storms, right? You know, uh, if you have a serious um, transformational goal, 
uh, or mission, you're going to get your ass kicked, right? It's mm. not going to be, uh, I, I can just imagine what it took for you to get to the point where you have this platform, this podcast platform, and you have 10 episodes under your belt. People will come to your site and they will see the front story, but they won't see the backstory where you literally got your ass kicked to get to this uh, 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 point, right? right. So that sense of a resiliency is uh, really going is important. And I'm lifting up some of the values that CBMA uh, has. And uh, one of them is uh, trust and being able to trust your instinct and trust uh, your gut. Your, your, your gut. Um, I wonder, um, one of the things, too, is I looked at your Twitter page and or your Twitter profile, and I see you across the table from uh, President Obama, and, uh, and and I watched the video intro on your site, and it seems as if you have, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, you are what inspired President Obama to start his My Brother's Keeper initiative, it looks like. So the answer to that question is resoundingly yes. I would tell you that there are probably about at least 10 other people uh, in the nation that are probably saying, well, uh, I was the person that inspired uh, <laughs> President Ryan. And so one, uh, you know, history belongs to uh, whomever tells Right. It, and right? we got it all here, right, live. We recorded it. We have it live and we have it uh, uh, recorded, right? And so the picture that you're referring to is uh, me sitting across from the president in September of 2013. Uh, in the Roosevelt Room um, in the White House, along with other foundation presidents and uh, other social entrepreneurs. And the interesting thing about that meeting, TQ, was that I was the most junior person Mm. uh, in the room. Um, However, I uh, had poured a lot into helping to create and catalyze this current movement around black male achievement. So they saw fit, whoever was uh, both on the uh, president's team and I guess on the foundation team, when I walked in and I saw the name uh, cards and I was like, wow, they have me right across from the president. (laughs) And it was that meeting when he was uh, convinced to launch My Brother's Keeper mm. uh, initiative, which really elevated the issue of black male achievement and boys and men of color in a way nationally and from the White House heretofore had not uh, not happened. And so, uh, yes, we and I were very integral to that decision. And like I said, there are others uh, you know, I'm sure some people have seen the video and have heard me tell the story and have said, well, who is he to say that uh, he helped convince the president? And I'm like, who am I not to say that? Right, right. right. Uh, Claim it. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, what's interesting, that September um, was following what I call the summer of the verdict and the speech, which is really instrumental to this work and this movement. In July of 2013, that first week, uh, we heard the not guilty verdict of George Zimmerman in the murder of Trayvon Martin. Mm. A week later, 
the president made his impromptu speech in the White House press room where he challenged the nation to find a better way to invest in black men and boys to um, ensure that uh, black men and boys were valued, felt valued in their nation. And he said that, you know, uh, we have to do something. And he said during that speech, when Trayvon Martin was first murdered, uh, the president said, if I had a son, he would have looked like uh, Trayvon Martin. During the speech, he said, uh, I was uh, Trayvon Martin 35 years ago. And so that summer, when he after he made that speech, um, folks began to look to the campaign for black male achievement, including the White House, and said, well, the president put out this vision. Now we have to uh, give some legs to it. Hmm. And so while it was not the campaign for black male achievement exclusively, singularly, because nothing changes uh uh, with one organization or one leader, um, Angela Glover Blackwell at PolicyLink, uh, she reminds me and the nation uh, all the time, if uh, you can achieve your goal by yourself, it is not big enough. Right. But it was that summer with CBMA and all the work that we had done in previous years prepared us for that moment to respond to the call right. of the president. And I always ask when we talk about leadership and I I, I ask leaders a couple of key questions. You know, what season are you in? Hmm. Right. Knowing uh, what season uh, you are in dictates uh, how uh, you are moving about. Right. Whether if this is a season for you to learn and grow and and you understand that season, you are more comfortable or understanding why things are taking a little slow, why you're getting these lessons that are sometimes uh, hard and bitter to uh, uh, bear. Uh, but knowing when you are in a season of growth and acceleration and elevation, you act accordingly. But I also ask, uh, what is God preparing you for? And getting clear uh, on that. Um, and so those years not only with the campaign for black male achievement, but every moment of uh, my life was preparation for that particular moment. And that's when I say, you know, it was, uh, yes, it was serendipitous, but I think it was, uh, we all have, yeah, we all have a divine call in. Um, I would say when you ask about, uh, what skills should social entrepreneurs have if you're building something? Uh, I would say that you have to have a, a spiritual base. Uh, you know, I myself, I am a Christian, and um, that is uh, uh, my spiritual base, and that has been an evolution over the years to getting me to uh, that belief. But if you think you are the center of the universe and that there is a power or there is no power greater than you, um, you're going to have a problem, right? And it, you may have uh, some success for a while, but I don't think you'll have sustained success. So having a spiritual uh, focus, and I'm not talking about uh, organized formal religion, um, but I do think that there certainly, you know, 
And for some, it might be mindfulness, right? You may characterize it in a different way. Right. Uh, uh, but I will tell you that overwhelmingly at the heart of what I have been able to do as a leader and the impact that I have uh, been able to have is uh, rooted um, in my spiritual foundation. Very nice. Well, I, I wanted to close with if you could tell us what are three books, if you have them, or, or one if you got a strong one that you recommend uh, for people that you give them as a gift. Wow. Okay. So uh, I'll give you three books. Uh, one book, and you know, depending on when you ask me this question, you'll get three different um, 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 answers, right? Um, is uh, a book by uh, Dr. Uh, Con- J. Conrad Hole. And that's called The Turnaround CEO. Hmm. And it is a book that talks about managing change uh, and the CEO inside of you. Uh, a bunch of uh, golden nuggets. Ironically, the book is out of print, and I tracked down the author, and he has inventory in his basement, and he has to date, uh, you know, I sent him $100 the first time, and I said, send me a few books, and he sent me a box of like 100 books. So <laughs> we've done that twice, and so part of my ministry is giving away turnaround uh, a, a CEO. Um, I would uh, recommend a book called The Alchemist hmm. uh, by Paolo Coelho, um, and it is a fable and a coming-of-age a story of the journey of a young man finding his what they call personal legend and his calling uh, in life. Uh, an all-time favorite of mine is a book written by uh, uh, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, and it's Think and Grow Rich, A Black Choice. And it's an all-time favorite for me because I read the book in the early 90s at a time, and I didn't share this earlier in our conversation, you know, the day I decided to, in September 1st, um, 1988, to um, save my, my life and uh, go into rehab, I was deciding on whether or not on that day I had it planned out whether I was going to commit suicide or not because I think that I could break this lifelong addiction of my life. I was like, uh, on the outside, it seemed like I was doing so well, but I was in deep pain. But I made the choice to get clean. That was a game changer for my life. And as I got clean, I began to uh, first listen to to uh, Les Brown motivational tapes and uh, George Frazier who wrote Think, uh, not Think Grow, A Success Runs in Our Race. And then I came across Dennis Kimbrough who had a series of uh, entrepreneurship and personal development books. But this particular book, and you may be familiar with uh, Napoleon Hill's original classic version, Think and Grow Rich. And uh, this uh, where, you know, Napoleon Hill studied the uh, titans of industry in the early, of, uh, early 20th century. 
But Think and Grow Rich, A Black Choice by Dennis Kimbrough, really elevated the entrepreneurial uh, business uh, leaders in our community. And when I read that book at that time in the early 90s, it was that time I was figuring out, uh, why'd you keep me alive, God? And, 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 and what's uh, the plan? What are you preparing me for? And little did I know, as I was reading these books and that were heavenly business entrepreneurship focused, that he was preparing me to infuse uh, that mindset into the not-for-profit uh, sector. And so uh, Think and Grow Rich, uh, A Black Choice is uh, the third book that I would uh, recommend. Man, Sean, it's been an awesome conversation. I uh, There's a lot more I want to ask you, um, but I know perhaps we can bring you back in another time to continue the conversation because you're doing amazing things for black men and boys. I, I love to see, I have three boys myself. Um, wow. I love to see how I could help do whatever uh, I can to help doing what you're doing, at least spread it around with the show, but actually in person doing some things in my local area to help out. Um, it's been a great conversation, and my guest today has been Sean Dove. Sean, thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure, TQ. Thanks so much for what you're doing. Keep pressing. Keep blessing, my brother. And uh, find some time uh, to keep resting also, right? And and, and remember that your uh, self-care and your wellness and healing is a paramount and will allow you to continue uh, this work. And the last thing I will say, and hopefully you won't cut this out. Not at all. Um, the last thing I would want to share with you and your listeners, and this is a, a mantra of mine, is to uh, discover your G-spot and become a gold digger. And you probably heard me talk about this in one of my talks or one of a previous interview. I believe when I say G-spot, it's no, it's not what some people may automatically go to. Right. But I think we all have our gift spot, our genius spot. Uh, for some, it could be their God spot, their great spot. We all have that, and we got to discover it. And, and, and uh, it's also our gold spot and, and that we have gold and treasure uh, inside of us. And my life turned around uh, when I began to identify what were my gifts? What was my G-spot? What was uh, my greatness inside of me? And I began digging and bringing it forth and sharing it uh, uh, with others. So uh, discover your G-spot and become a gold digger is uh, a mantra that uh, I would encourage uh, your listeners to, to live by. Well, if they want to find out more, where can they find you online? So my website is uh, blackmaleachievement.org. Uh, um, my uh, Twitter handle is Dove Soars, um, and Soars is uh, S O A R S, not Soars like in bed sores. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm also uh, on uh, uh, Instagram and Facebook, uh, but I love Twitter. You know, Twitter for me is the digital underground railroad because. Uh, it's a great place to build community and uh, connect people. And I just love uh, uh, connecting, uh, connecting people. And so certainly the, the website, blackmailachievement.org. Uh, uh, Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate it.